As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be an opera singer. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a an opera singer. To me, being an opera singer was better than being president of the United States. Even before I first wandered into the cab stand for an after-school job, I knew I wanted to be a part of them. To sing is to impersonate. But who do I impersonate? There are opera singers that are really good at singing opera. I want to sound like them. But what does it mean to sound like somebody? When you sound like somebody, you also sound like yourself. But I don't know what that means. Opera singers are not gangsters. Some gangsters might be opera singers, but I don't know any. In general, though, opera singers are too busy to be gangsters. But I think that opera singers and gangsters share something. I'm going to try to figure out what that is. Why does Ray Liotta want to be a gangster? Is it because of what gangsters represent? Is it because of what they have? What they have. Power, wealth, cars, girls. These things are important to Ray Liotta. Gangsters have a purpose to accumulate. Gangsters represent the things that they accumulate. A gangster is a gun. A gangster is a drug. A gangster is powerful. A gangster is illicit. How to impersonate a gun. Gangsters mean so many things to so many kinds of people. If you want to become a gangster, you try to become whatever gangster means to you. You try to become the gangster that means the most to you. But you can never really become another person. How am I not myself? How am I not myself? Myself. Myself. How am I not myself? 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 You can only try to be like another person. You can only impersonate. So you impersonate Frank Lucas. Hey, 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 hey! Don't rub on that. You block that. You understand? That's alpaca. That's $25,000 alpaca. You impersonate Al Capone. A man become preeminent. He's expected to have enthusiasms. 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 You impersonate Vito Corleone. He'll set up a meeting with someone that you absolutely trust. Guaranteeing your safety. And at that meeting, you'll be assassinated. Denzel Washington is like a gangster. De Niro is like a gangster. Marlon Brando is like a gangster. But they are like particular gangsters. Gangsters with names. They impersonate. Brando reminds me the most of an opera singer. He has cotton balls in his mouth. Sometimes when I'm singing, I feel like I have cotton balls in my mouth. But usually it's just my mouth filling up with blood. Laughing with a mouth of blood from a little spill I took. I'm just kidding. My mouth isn't filling up with blood. My tongue presses against my bottom front teeth. I move it as little as possible. This is how pure vowels are made. Cotton balls make this. I understand. You found paradise in America? I'm a mezzo-soprano. When I started singing, my voice teacher had me listen to the canon. The canon for and of mezzo-sopranos. But just listening, and not watching, it's hard to tell the difference between operatic voices. I listened to Cecilia Bartoli. I listened to Frederica von Stade. 
listened to Marilyn Horn. They are all famous mezzo-sopranos. So who do I try to be? I should be like all of them. A chimera, a cyborg, a collection of stolen parts, a voice made of other voices. But I can't take someone's voice from them. Then it wouldn't be an impersonation. It'd be its stolen voice. Now, sing. My dad loves Dana Carvey. He loves Wayne's World, partly because it takes place in Aurora, Illinois, near my dad's hometown. Above all, he loves Carvey as George Herbert Walker Bush on Saturday Night Live. Here's a quote from my dad. It got so you would hear the real Bush speak and everybody would laugh. Dana Carvey's George Herbert Walker Bush. Not gonna do it. Not gonna do it. Wouldn't be prudent at this juncture. There is a man here who has earned a lasting place in our hearts and in our history. To impersonate, to represent. What does Ted Cruz represent? What does Dana Carvey represent? Were it not that I have had bad dreams. Which dreams indeed are ambition? For the very substance of the ambitious is merely the shadow of a dream. What do we learn from shadows? I'm Senator Ted Cruz. <laughs> and I do not like you in a box. <laughs> Time for introductions. I am here, Noisy Ghost, with Eric Wenzel once again, and Andre Kello once again, and our special ghost this week is stand-up comedian Ian Abramson. So say hi, everybody. Hello. And hi. <laughs> hey, we said everybody. Yeah, good. Glad that happened. Um, and I'm going to start with a question to get sort of get this going. Um, what do you guys think is the difference between acting and impersonating? Sure. Uh, I think that with with acting, the goal is often to try to create a uh, a sincere, like a, a, a giving out a genuine emotion, or even if it is some sort of exaggeration of that, it's a uh, it's something. It's, it's something that is coming directly from within you, whereas an impersonation is very much a... Uh, it's, it's targeting something very specific. So if Jamie Foxx and Ray is trying to be mm. Ray Charles, uh, it's probably less of an impersonation, although maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Uh, maybe it does have some sort of impersonation in there. Well, it's an impersonation in the sense that he is becoming, he's trying to portray a very particular person that already exists and has a legacy yeah, behind that, him. Yeah, that's true, definitely. But at the same time, it's also an, an Academy Award winning film that's melodramatic, so it's he assumes sure. all sort of aspects of a theatrical performance that wouldn't be common to Ray as a entertainer in his own right, I guess. Yeah, and th but then, yeah, he, he also does need to make sure he's getting those mannerisms that uh, people are going to be looking for, very specific mm -hmm. uh a very specific way of vocalizing. So there's definitely some impersonation in there. I guess that's that's what it is. That's interesting. I've never really thought about that. So any kind of acting where you're playing someone that already uh, I exists involves some degree of, of impersonation, but you're saying that it's possible that there's also a more creative element coming from the person who's the actor that maybe they get from something else. I don't know. Sure. If you look at... <clears throat> 
you mentioned Dana Carvey and Dana Carvey's impersonations are um, both exaggerated and offering something outside of uh, what mm -hmm. he's he's commenting on who the person is with an additional say childlike quality in uh, George Bush senior yeah. by by making him more childlike uh, it may not be how he actually acts during a speech but he's commenting on how he sees George Bush senior as a president mm -hmm. so he's kind of adding that in that's been my take on it that being said, I don't really do impersonations. So <laughs> yeah, I was going to. I'm not an expert. About, yeah. yeah um, uh, what do you think, Eric? Uh, so I think impersonation maybe has more applications. Uh, acting is specifically for something theatrical. It's a, a play or a film or something. And like impersonation can be uh, like, I think like, you know, it's like a felony to impersonate an officer. <laughs> um there's it's an it's in a larger application i guess and then also i was i kept thinking oh wait you're not saying impressions because i was like well oh, it should be comedic but like an impersonator it's fidelity is the most important thing right yeah like but it's not just fidelity like you were saying like ian was saying it's um it's supposed to reference the thing so that you remember it repetition mm -hmm. with a difference sort of like parody i guess yeah. I guess in a person, it's also less original material or no, it's less actual material. Like when you're an actor, you have your script and everything and impersonating is like, you're trying to become that thing. So like you were, Ian was saying like with the, you put yourself in it a little bit, you become that, how you would play that or something. But like when you're impersonating something, you're like <clears throat> trying to push yourself away maybe and become this thing like I'm going to be George Bush but like not specifically say things he says but like try to impersonate his whole mm -hmm. character his way of talking well when we're talking just now about uh, about what actors do I think we've been making reference to a particular tradition in acting yeah you know that comes from the the actor's studio and uh, Stanislavski and Strasberg and this idea that uh, so psychological realism, right? Mm -hmm. That you can understand so well the, a person's uh, motivations that it becomes possible to uh, to know what they would do in a given situation, mm -hmm. right? So you're not so much impersonating people for the most part. Like if you do your research and your acting exercises, instead you get to a point where you are that person. You've changed enough of how you feel and respond to things that it's not an impersonation. Well, you imagine that to be true, but that doesn't mean that it It's never true. Yeah, it's never actually true. Well, I think when you do impersonation, you're trying to pass for that person. Yeah. Like I was thinking of like this thing I saw on TLC or something and they were like weird jobs or impersonators or something, but they had this guy that like hangs out in casinos and like is Robert De Niro and he like <laughs> has like spent time to like get cards credit cards issued to Robert De Niro like and he acts like how vacationers would think Robert De Niro would act so he's kind of this like amalgamation of all the Robert De Niro characters there was like, yeah there was an incident like that at Lollapalooza I remember going to in like 2005 where there was a guy dressed up as Johnny Depp in Pirates of the Caribbean and there were but like like so many people thought it was actually Johnny Depp and I was like okay first off 
Johnny Depp wouldn't go to Lollapalooza. <laughs> Two, yeah. if he were to go to Lollapalooza, why would he? Why house. would he dress <laughs> up? They were like, he was dressed up like a pirate. Why would he dress up like one of his characters just <laughs> yeah. to go hang out at a concert? Like, why would? The, there's so many issues with this. It's like the kind of thing <laughs> that you would expect somebody to do if they were in some. TV show that was on for two years in the 70s and they still go to the conventions. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, they're desperately clinging. But Johnny Depp's doing fine. Yeah, it was like, I don't know what these people were thinking. Well, I was just to wonder about that with, like, actors that play really cool parts, like Batman or whatever. Like, do they keep the costume? Like, because you get to be Batman during the shooting of the movie. But then, like, don't you still want to be Batman? Or, like, is Michael Keaton, like, I'm Batman. Like, I don't know. Like, you want... Because that's like when you're a kid and you're playing Batman or you're playing a pirate or something and, you know, you want to be that thing. And I guess, is it acting or impersonating? I'm pretty sure Christian Bale is doing an impression of Michael Keaton <laughs> when he does the, the ridiculous gravelly voice. I can't handle that. That was like... Oh God. He always does that when he's doing an American accent, though. He does the same thing in American Psycho. He just sort of like talks slower than he normally does. I don't know. No, what but when that's he was about. Bruce Wayne, I, I was okay. But when he was like, like he sounded like, give him a couple days and some lemon tea. <laughs> yeah. You know, he's like, <laughs> like he's, he's Batman, and he's gonna be like, he's running. Tell me road. where they are. Oh, excuse me. <clears throat> yeah. Oh, that's better. Tell me where they are. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's even worse than that. It was like raspy. He's like Batman is. His <laughs> but it's possible that the the reason that they make that choice is because it's so easy for us to imitate it, right? It becomes that was so true for Bane, I think, despite oh, sound design issues. Oh, I it, love that. It becomes yeah. iconic, right? Yeah. It, it, yeah. it gets boiled down to an incredibly easily reproducible... Yeah. An essential uh, vocal sound that you can just mm-hmm. make, that anyone can make, you know? Right, anybody could be Batman. Yeah. It was... Well, what's funny about the, the Christian Bale Batman, too, is, like, he clearly... It was like in that universe, Bruce Wayne has a Batman voice that he does. Oh yeah, because like Batman, he talks about that, right? Does he? The character doesn't he say like, I, I'm gonna change my voice so people don't recognize me. Oh, and when he in the in the Batman Begins when he's like, I'm gonna do this. Yeah, like yeah, this. yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. the costume and yeah. the voice, and it's yeah. all his theatricality. And yeah. he mentions the theatricality, and then you, I think uh, Michael Caine uh, as. Uh, Alfred, he, he mm-hmm. says, I think you're overdoing it a little bit with the theatricality. <laughs> and it's weird because where does that theatricality come from? We don't know him to be like a drama Yeah, he didn't. Do you think, oh my God, what if he was? What if when he was like, well, he's, he's a, when he was in high school, he was kid. in all the musicals and stuff? He totally went to, I mean, he didn't have parents, so he probably had to go to school all year round. And he's like at these boarding like, schools and stuff. Yeah. And they're like... Well, we'll, you know, play some polo and... I would think that he wouldn't be, like, considering his parents died outside of theater, I don't think he's the guy that you're going to get to go and, (laughs) and, like, do stage crew. Yeah, no, but, well, no, he'd be be the actor. Really? I know, his happiest moment was, like, right before they died at the theater. So it's like he's trying... He's going back to the scene of the crime. He didn't look super happy watching Deflator Mouse. I mean, well, which he one? was what six? Oh god, what I forgot that it was old? fucking Deflator Mouse. Do we That's know too that? much. Do we know that? It, w- it was because well, they're always Mouse redoing it. Because remember when they they like the first time they got killed in the Batman, it was popcorn and flowers or something, and then he like forgot. And then when Val Kilmer was remembering it, it was like roses and pearls. Oh yeah. And and it was like I like the idea that like Batman like forgot. <laughs> <laughs> Robin, his parents also died. Doing a, a stage performance. Yeah, that's a good point. Theater kills guys. <laughs> Stay away. Yeah, I would think. Yeah, these are not the guys. Like they're so into theatricality, and yet they have such a bad relationship with it. 
That's my favorite Batman movie line, though, is when, like, Chris O'Donnell's really upset, and then Batman's like, if Batman could have saved your family, he would have. Like, mm. he's... Because, no, it's because it's stupid. <laughs> but it's, like, the raspy Batman voice, because, is that Val Kilmer or George Clooney at that point trying oh, I trying to do it? George but, Clooney, like, I think, with Chris O'Donnell. But I, I think It was really... It was just... A thing that happens, like, you, you were saying earlier about Batman impersonating... Uh, about Christian Bale impersonating Michael Keaton. I think that's a thing. Maybe the actor themselves doesn't necessarily be like, I'm playing this character. I'm going to be inspired by this. I'm going to be inspired by that. But they're not like going for necessarily a specific person. We impose later as an audience things that they are impersonating to us. So like, yeah, it's possible. So maybe impersonations is a thing more that the audience does and less than the actor. Well, I, I sometimes. think Pacino is doing an impression of himself. You know, it's, it's well, got, in the Phil Spector movie. No, in, in all <laughs> of everything his now, most, everything yeah. he does now, it seems like yeah. he's. It's true. He's well, actually, doing the, an Al Pacino impression. I mean, it's not a famous thing that they say about uh, Brando that like the Godfather ruined him because like all the movies he appeared in after it, it's like he couldn't turn it off anymore. I remember hearing that was a thing. I don't know. Or that maybe no one thinks that anymore, but someone well, he, told see, me that. He just forgot to take the cotton balls out of his mouth? <laughs> no, that, like, he, he developed that in such an intense way that, like, it changed the way he acted after that, that, like... Because he had such a weird relationship to his body that, like, as, an, as a, as a um, what was it, Meisner, as a Stanislavski performer, that he just, like, would just take on the thing forever. It was just such an indelible role for him. Yeah, the, I don't know, that it just, like... Yeah, the commitment to the... Yeah. I think he just got fat. I think so, too. And I think that's fine. He should be allowed to get fat. He's really good in the Johnny Depp movie with the La Mancha. Talk about it. Remember them? Oh, the... 21 Jump Street. No. <laughs> Merlin Brando, Johnny Depp would be really good in 21 Jump Street. No, well, it was... What was the, the... What was it? The Freshman? No, he's like... It was... I don't know. It, the Man from La Mancha? Yes, Man thing? from La Mancha. That's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? It's is that Johnny it's like 22 Depp Jump Street. pretends to be like a pirate. <laughs> it was Don Juan DeMarco. Oh, is that what I'm thinking of? No, I think you're thinking... Is, I am thinking of Don Juan DeMarco. Why am I calling it Man of La Mancha? <laughs> Don Juan DeMarco. Where, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. I brought this up, but yeah. He just... My sister, like, she, she and her friend went and saw that movie, and they would do the Johnny Depp impersonations like they would make fun of it but somehow it was hot they're like it's so hot he's like i'm don juan DeMarco, and like they were like giggling is he and pretending laugh- to be spanish is he impersonating a spaniard i he's think imper- the- well, what we're supposed to get don from juan. it is that he's doing an impression of marlon brando um but he sort of isn't don juan like a dracula or something he's just this lover of the ages <laughs> like isn't that the plot of don juan DeMarco? is like i don't think he's a dracula he's like don juan from the 1600s but then he shows up in like new york in the 90s or something Right. And he's like still loving people. And he's like, <laughs> I don't know. I just remember like. He never stopped loving. He never stopped loving. <laughs> uh, yeah. But just that my sister was like, it's such a good movie. And it's so like stupid. And then she, she loved that. I guess the impersonation thing is when you do it, you also get like a high out of it. Like it's fun. It's fun talk. when you like nail it. When you do yeah. it right. Yeah. It's fun to do the Arnold Schwarzenegger voice or something. And so it was like fun for her to be like, I'm done. Like, yeah, it's, it's, it's like it was stupid, but she enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in the ego. When, uh, when Bill Clinton was president, there was somebody on SNL that was struggling to do an impersonation of him. They were working on it all the time. And he said he finally cracked it when he realized, uh, uh, a Bill Clinton impersonation was just a JFK impersonation with a Southern accent. <gasps> Yes. Was that Phil Hartman? Because Bill Clinton is Maybe trying to after, do a JFK or is that Daryl? Yeah, that makes I sense. I think it was Daryl Hammond, yeah. but I, it could have been Phil Hartman. It was not Phil Spector. No. Oh. Well, in that sense, it's 
it's, I guess, two things. The impersonation is happening twofold. Like, the audience is both seeing the JFK, like, ghosting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, but I don't know if I would have seen the, the JFK. Like, I, if I, you didn't he, know that? Yeah. I, I, think, uh, I think he cracked it and realized, oh, I... Bill Clinton probably studied JFK a lot to and his likability and how he managed to do that, but uh, it's not something that's instantly taken in. So to get to a Bill Clinton impersonation, he used an impersonation that he assumed Bill Clinton was using. There was mm. like these weird levels of yeah. impersonation and what we're supposed to take in and what we might not necessarily take in. Obama was quoting JFK the other day in that speech, and I was like, is he like the the like not we don't want to repeat the things that JFK did but do we want to like is he the the persona presidents want to occupy like well he could still try to kill uh, Castro JFK is a president that when you quote him you don't have to worry about whether or not he has uh, positive connotations for people yeah that's a good point yeah you know generally people have fond memories of JFK yeah Uh, not my dad I'm serious (laughs) like riddance no no seriously he's like yeah no he's like oh those those Upper East Coasters or whatever. Upper East Coasters. Those guys over there. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure he faced a lot of prejudice in his life as an Upper East Coaster. <laughs> he did. But, you know, I, I think a lot no, of... No, don't you remember there was that, that... Well, that's why they were comparing Obama uh, and JFK, because JFK had to make that speech about, like, being Catholic is still Christian. Because, like, for a long time, they're like, you can't have a Catholic president. It'll never work. They because be his uh, allegiance is to the Pope and to not the Pope. to the mm-hmm. Constitution. Yeah. And then he yeah. made it clear to know his allegiance is to the Constitution. to the corporations. The, I think that if Christian Bale is doing Michael Keaton and if Bill Clinton is doing JFK, I think, you know, a lot of people end up mimicking their heroes when they're attempting to do something complicated and difficult. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, a lot of people have been giving... Uh, giving a lot of shit to uh, Iggy Azalea. Oh, yeah. For... Um, the sonic she, blackface. Right, because yeah. she um, she said in that interview, was it on The Voice? Not on The Voice. Uh, the View? <laughs> <laughs> you know, sound, not picture. That, um, <laughs> that she was inspired by Missy Elliott and that a lot of her... I clutched my pearls when that happened. I was so upset. Yeah. A lot Wait, of the why? criticism she's been getting has been for because she's trying to sound like somebody who isn't a white girl from Australia. She doesn't sound anything like Missy Elliott, though. That's the thing. She's not even mimicking. She's just mimicking this, like... Well, her version, that's what's offensive. It yeah. W- it would be one thing if, if she, she were doing a spot on Missy Elliott. I mean, but it would still, not. like, she's suck, just, but, yeah. Her idea of doing Missy Elliott is just impersonating a black person. Yeah. Mm. And but her, I, I yeah. think it's more mm-hmm. generic than that. Like, she's just... She's the fancy person, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's so, right. Remember fancy. the Drake song I "Fancy"? Didn't... There's already been a hip hop song called "Fancy." There, but anyway, sorry. There have been a lot of songs called "Fancy." Yes. Yeah. Ian. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, I was gonna say I didn't realize that her na- her song was called "Fancy," so I thought you were just saying, "Is that the fancy woman?" <laughs> <laughs> no, she's so fancy. Yeah. Um, yeah, those Australians, they're known for it. <laughs> I heard about her controversy before I heard her music, so oh, by okay. that point, I was like, "Well, I guess I don't need to listen to this." Yeah. Well, I guess I mean she just seems kind of generic in the way that all that music is right now where it's like kind of rap kind of edm kind of this and that like it's probably on a commercial it's probably on america's got talent like it as long it's like as a it, production alchemy where they're yeah. trying to make the be- the thing that'll appeal to the most amount of people yeah, yeah. and it's just got to sound like a little different but not too much so it's like because i think the other thing is like that music they want it to be like hip-hoppy but like not too hip-hoppy like 
<laughs> watered down or like you black, know black but not too black. right yeah no yeah, yeah like, well, that's, no, like that was yeah. that was elvis right that yeah. was yeah. like it's that like, was david bowie trying to do little richard that was yeah it's been uh, going elvis trying to do arthur big boy crud up and this is just reprehensible because she's terrible whereas justin timberlake we're like it's fine he's i'll i don't dance, i think but, it's all terrible guys yeah no like, i mean it is it is all disgusting but, but it's also like but you also you want it to be vaguely ethnic and i mean they make these jokes about like american apparel ads like just can't look white but they should probably be like Syrian Ecuadorian or something like there's this thing about having a strange look and I was, mm. I was thinking about this because I was looking at Instagram the other day I was on the Instagram mm-hmm. um, I don't even know who or why but it was like a picture of Nicki Minaj but there were like three of her and it was for like Heineken or something and an advertisement it was an advertisement and they had her three times but it was like her but different versions of her and it was just that the wig had changed but there was something about the photoshopping and everything that was like different flavors of like ethnicity or something it was really weird and then i was also thinking like in the end i mean it's all photoshopped and color corrected and changed and stuff like that so it's also when you get this music production too when you're like shifting the pitch and everything like in the end you've just got this amalgamation of mm. you know the idea cyborg of, of stolen parts yeah no exactly exactly <laughs> so it's like it's it doesn't seem like to me when when i heard that song i'm like oh she's not just tr- she's not trying to sound specifically one thing she's just trying to sound like that thing that like yeah i'm so fancy like i don't know like it's like trying she's trying to sound you're doing an impersonation, <laughs> of an impersonation. <laughs> yeah exactly like no one in their entire world has ever sounded like that <laughs> i don't know I, I i don't know if i'm explaining it well enough but like to me it's like more it's not a one-to-one impersonation. I agree. I agree it's with this. Well, that's, like, yeah. She's trying to fit into this thing that keeps changing, and it has a lot. It also has a lot to do with like technology morphing things and like marketing and branding, and it's like a bigger. Well, it's offensive, I think, to to me anyway, possibly to other people, uh, when a person's identity gets mechanized in that way. Hmm. Like, you know, your voice is an aspect of your identity. And uh, when you take on a series of tropes that are just associated with a particular cultural history or uh, geography or race or whatever, then it's like you're saying that all those people that are doing that thing are just uh, people that are like me doing a costume or an impersonation. You know, like there is no such thing as Australians. All there is is people doing an Australian accent. You know, Australian isn't real. Yeah, to be fair, Australia is the brunt of a lot of really bad impersonations. Sure. And then... What, so this was Iggy Azalea's, Australia's revenge against... Well, no, I'm saying she already talks funny. (laughs) She already talks funny, so, you know, you can't be too hard. I don't know. You can't blame her for not wanting to sound like an Australian. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know where this fits, but I just think of a good day, America, right? Yeah. Good, 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 yeah. Good. Yeah. Okay. I just imagine right. Iggy Azalea like coming here to like be like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be racist so I can get vengeance for my homeland. Like, here, put another shrimp on the Barbie. Here, I'll put one on, and then there's like doing a horrible. Yeah. That's, right, because, not, that's not a racist. <laughs> this is a racist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But why is she taking revenge against black people? I don't know. I don't know the. I don't know the psychology of these people. <laughs> I don't. I think, just report. I think she's just, just like any other kid out there that's like you're into stuff and you're just trying to like be the things you like 
So Maybe. it's the same thing as when uh, Robert Plant tries to sound like, uh, you know, uh, Blind Lemon Jefferson. That's yeah. That's uh, he's doing it because he thinks that's what music should sound like. So I will make music that sounds like that, which we, means I have to do an impersonation of this. Well, you, you said before that, like people impersonate their heroes, like Bill Clinton impersonating yeah. JFK or whatever. But if it's like or what or the person that is most politically expedient for them to. OK, no. Impersonate. OK, well, I don't want it to go in that direction. I just meant that like when you're a kid, you impersonate your heroes or like, you know, so it's like I don't think it's like a meant is a bad yeah. thing like they're like sitting down they're like how can i destroy culture well no like, i'm not saying i don't say, not saying like, that either rules i want to learn how to play guitar but if robert plant is singing like that and he's doing it deliberately because he wants to make that kind of music then it's possible that he's imitating a certain vocal style because it's the same as if you know jimmy page is imitating a particular guitar style right so he takes a you know, all of the specific little elements, he analyzes them, he duplicates them, and then he rearranges them, right? But that's not what Iggy Azalea is doing. Iggy Azalea appears to be simply, uh, you know, adding certain aspects of a, a cultural history uh, for, like, spice or whatever. I mean, she isn't actually creating, a, you know, something worth that should exist but that's but that style of singing she has has just been around that's just like pop whatever music and so it's like a vernacular it's like a global famous style of singing but it has controversy which means she's not doing it right she's she's not passing wait ian ian when you sure uh okay so obviously as a comedian you have like influences but you said you don't do impersonations do you sure. see any sort of how absolutely when i was starting out i uh i feel like i was writing and performing like some weird combination of steve martin and zach galifianakis which is I, I mean you could still accuse me of but i think it's uh less obvious and i think that's all you can really ask for when you're starting out doing anything you just want it to be less the least as least obvious yeah as possible. you know like when people say uh like great artists steal i i don't think they mean that they're just actually using their art i think it's more of uh, uh they love that art and they realize that that is a huge influence and they want to use parts of it that they found effective uh in a new way so take if, the form of it sort of and then sure yeah yeah uh an example in comedy also is uh early in richard Pryor's career he was practically a replica of bill cosby mm-hmm. he wasn't using his material but he was using his voice and his uh the just the way that he went about a joke the way that he delivered a joke the kind of subjects that he did and uh now when you say his voice you're talking about his like his comic voice not his like correct impression of Bill cosby yeah exactly and um and like i mean everybody would say this to richard Pryor. this wasn't like a like he he was aware that he was uh he was doing that and bill cosby was groundbreaking at the time because he would go on stage and very decidedly not address race he Mm -hmm. would uh and that was that was different because it was saying um I can be funny just as a person just talking about anything. And so Cosby was uh, was groundbreaking in that sense of like, wow, this guy's just funny and he's black. Uh, and then Richard Pryor realized, one, he was, he was just kind of um, – and th- so this is like – end of the 50s mm-hmm. right and so uh cosby's started cosby has a lot of attraction uh, he's uh one of the biggest acts in the country and then prior is getting bigger and bigger 
has had some TV spots and goes to Vegas where he's doing a weekend at a hotel. Everybody's there. Uh, the entire Rat Pack is watching him. And while he's on stage, after like three minutes, he says, what am I doing? And disappears for five years because he's like, I'm not being myself. You know, yeah. like mm-hmm. what I'm saying is Iggy Azalea is going <laughs> to turn, turn into Bill Cosby. Right? <laughs> oh, my God. It wouldn't be the craziest thing in the world. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, it, if it really is, like you say, if it's a uh, a progression that you see over and over again when you look at the way that young artists work, which is that they start out not having a clue what to do. Sure. So all they do is they just find somebody that they admire and then just do what they did. Well, they accidentally make something marketable. Yeah, I don't think get, you can help it. Eaten but there's, the there's a difference between... Um, I think it has to come to a point where you realize you're doing that and you... you continue just trying to create that eventually you get away from that naturally but i don't think you can help but be imitating something when you're well think of all the the british musicians that sing with an american accent that's a great example because the beatles came over and they were imitating american music and then five years after that everyone is imitating the beatles yeah i don't know how to feel about accents when you're singing because it is yes there are plenty of you uh singers that sing with an like Morrissey sings with an accent right uh and I guess like but I mean I, listen to all the the like British pop music of the 60s like are they singing an American accent or are they just sort of just singing in a but they're like definitely a, not singing in their well their they're singing like the, like the the black blues singers that they wanted to sound like like Eric, yeah. Eric Burden is doing an impression of a black blues singer so they're yeah and when, yeah. He, when he does so it's not uh, an accent so much it's just like when he does uh hold on I'm coming you know that's He's just doing um, Sam and Dave. He's just mm-hmm. doing their song, but he's singing it, and so he gets to be on TV because he's white. Yeah. I don't know. Okay, I want to hold your hand. That does not have. No, I agree. I agree a, with you. I'm just sort of accent. trying to figure out like what. But is it an American accent? It's like transatlantic. Yeah. But that, yeah. That's that's the is whole that thing it is? is that it's they're it's they're trying to sound American. They can't. So that's somewhere in between, and then and America then like, hears that they try to sound more British, they yeah. can't. So it becomes this other yeah. weird thing, it's and then that's why. And then it becomes, then it's great because it can play in any country because it's like, oh, it's English, but it's not. It's yeah. just like this Englishy sounding. <laughs> yeah. And then you have uh, uh, Green Day completing the circle where Billy Joe sings with a British accent. I don't even know. He sounds like he has like a speech impediment or something. I don't know. There's like a thing in that pop, like in pop punk in general, actually, where there's this. It's yeah, not, it's not it, English. I don't it, think. But he's trying to sound like like an English punk rocker. Yeah. Well, like maybe his idea of like what Sid Vicious or whatever. You know what I mean? Like yeah. He has this I, kind of yeah. Like, but even they, like the the British punk singers, they weren't singing like you know English people talk. <laughs> they were singing to exaggerate certain vowel sounds and make something that sounded weird and uncomfortable. But they sounded like British punk. They didn't sound like L.A. punk or something. Right, but the punks in all the different places, they did the opposite of an impersonation. They wanted to not sound like human beings. Yeah, yeah. Right, and that was, you know, I think that that's something you hear a lot of uh, punk singers do is that they are trying to sound uh, uh, like otherworldly and confrontational. You know, like maybe that's an aspect of Iggy Azalea's thing. You know, like maybe it is upsetting to people, and that's the point. But I can't imagine. No, she's that's that, not the point. She couldn't. She couldn't possibly. I'm right? what, what I'm no. less bothered by. I don't like. Like I said, Iggy Azalea. Like I mean, I heard the music, and it's it. I mean, I don't know. I don't like this kind of music. It's all garbage to me. And part of it is like because she's just talking about like how great things are and 
going. I think I love. I'm this. on the way from Paris to Tokyo, and it's just like <laughs> fuck you. That's that's you've been given this opportunity to speak, and you're just like talking about your bullshit lifestyle. Maybe it's a song about World War Two. Yeah, going from Paris to Tokyo. Yeah, you know. Oh yeah, it's I'm a it's a big back. political yeah it's a yeah. political commentary. That's what she's getting at. Mm-hmm. And we had all these fancy new weapons to mm-hmm. use. That's right. Yep. I. I would, lo- I would love something. <laughs> Why can't we have a song like that? You know, we had, sure, we had sure 99 love balloons about accidental nuclear holocaust. Now, yeah, but then you're never... Those songs become popular, and it's like... But then you're never actually supposed to like there them. There was garbage on the radio while that song was on the radio, though. Oh, yeah. You know I, what I mean? Oh, it's all garbage, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's popular <laughs> music. Like, that's, yeah. that's the whole thing about it. Yeah, that's why I guess I like... I don't think it's garbage. Or it's garbage, sure. but it's like, I am, be- I it's like beautiful garbage, you sure. know? That's my favorite album. I want to rub it all over my body, like some some garbage songs. I believe there can be integrity in popular music. Oh yeah, for sure. But but most, I don't know. I mean, like, I guess I don't give it that much. I mean, like, because I know it's pop music and it's popular and it's being used in commercials and it's not really about what most people get into music for. Like, what it's not really about what people care about music it's like not what? about whether you like it though it's about what it's doing you know there's well a, it's making me not care there's a writer a uh, guy uh, named john lyman who wrote a book about stand-up comedy I right was, ian was just looking at that oh yeah mm-hmm. it's a good book and uh, one of the premises of the book is that what pop singers and stand-up comedians were doing in the 50s and 60s was uh creating stuff that uh, allowed for a kind of uh, psychological integration of uh these communities that had been split apart right because the city used to represent this place where uh people were constantly confronted with different uh communities and ways of life and so you had to you know integrate yourself into different uh, concepts of what it is to be a citizen or to be a person mm-hmm. and then uh people started to after world war ii build up all these uh boundaries that split apart uh, the different uh, cultural realities. And what the stand-up comedian would do is go to the people in the suburbs mm-hmm. via the clubs and the uh, radio programs and the television shows and uh, bring the story of urban life to them. And not necessarily like a sanitized version because like the idea is that it is grit, that it is the, uh, the sort of... Uh, well, because if you don't know what's going on, then it becomes a, it's sort of a nightmare. Right? Yeah. It, it's this specter of reality that you can't comprehend. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of anxiety about it. Mm-hmm. You know, you wonder, is it good? You wonder, is it bad? You wonder, should I have left? You wonder, should I go back? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, here's the stand up comedian. Like, and it continued in that tradition for a long time, according to this fella. <laughs> like, you know, Jerry Seinfeld doing Seinfeld going, uh, you know, on a soundstage in L.A. telling the story of what it's like to live in New York to a bunch of people yeah. living in the suburbs all over the country. Or that episode of Louis, of Louis where he's uh, he goes to on uh, Jerry Seinfeld's uh, request to that, like, country club or whatever in Long Island. Sure, he's bringing the city yeah. to the country. Yeah. And, uh, and the part of the city that people have a question about, which is, you know, what is it when people are constantly confronted with, uh, you know, new and interesting and upsetting and weird parts of humanity that they ran away from to go out to the suburbs, you know, and that this was uh, something that, for example, uh, you know, Richard Pryor did. Yeah. Was that, you know, he's a guy going out and uh, 
creating these records, and the records get distributed, the LPs, right? And then these kids in college campuses and in rec rooms, in you know, safe, beautiful homes, wherever they are, are listening to stories about uh, poverty and racism and all the things that they never have to experience because they don't, you know, live the life of poor people in the city. And the time too, there's like this. Uh, there's a hipness component to it, right? Where uh, it's like. Right, because they have access to information yeah. that other people don't have access yeah. to. You know, you even if it is abject, even if it is uh, something you want to keep your distance from, the fact that you have come as close uh, to, con- to contact with it than others gives you cred, I guess. So you, you're saying uh, in this book the, the main argument is that uh, what, what they're bringing to uh, stand-up is, is showing them what life in the city is like? Well, they're showing to a certain group of people, whoever their audience is, what life is for the people that they aren't. So I, I would say that Richard Pryor uh, was the first person to show them what uh, – to, to talk about what their life is. I would say that uh, – I mean, he grew up in Peoria, Illinois, which is not a big town. Mm-mm. And uh, he – so – after that five years of disappearing, um, when he came back, he was slowly working towards uh, just like real portrayal and honesty in the world that he knew and was familiar with, uh, both in the city and in small towns that he he grew up in. So like he has a, a bit about a, a wino and it's like this <laughs> just five minute act out of uh, – and people are just dying. Wine is and what, he's wine doing is what made me the man I am today. Right, yeah. <laughs> sure, and sure. he's uh, doing an impersonation of a drunk. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Specifically and a, some sort of a, a homeless drunk who is possibly uh, got you know schizophrenia or some sort of a problem that causes him to you know, act in a way that's bizarre. Sure, mm-hmm. compared to before that doing an impression of a bowling pin. So the this, the difference between those, <laughs> I, uh, God bless that sweet sweet yeah. man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I mean like, and uh, that bowling pin bit that I'm talking about is wonderful, funny, and very well done. But it isn't uh, if if you are um, someone that is black in the '60s and you 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 don't see yourself or hear your voice anywhere. At best, you'll you'll hear these uh, these comics who kind of talk about it. But it's it's still very jokey. It's still uh, kind of just like, well, like we're oppressed, you know, like that that really sucks. And Richard Pryor comes in as like, this is our life. Uh, I'm going to say the N word not as something that is uh, just just as like a, a, as punctuation, you know, yeah. like something that um, I'm I'm talking to you. We're all part of that. Or I'm bringing I'm bringing my life to you, so listen. Sort mm-hmm. of. Yeah, yeah, we are. I'm showing. I'm I'm talking about our life, and in a way that other people weren't. Jackie Melms Mabley did a very similar thing. I read a dissertation about her uh, uh, that someone wrote um, comparing the, the Richard Pryor and Jackie Melms Mabley as like a comedians, as sort of disruptive comedians in the way that they was like Jackie Melms Mabley would always come in and be like, okay, I'm going to tell you a story. So she was just like a storytelling comedian, and so she did the same thing that Richard Pryor did, where she was just like. Okay, you're there. I'm here. I'm relating to you, and we're having a conversation. But I'm the one talking right now, and you're going to listen to me. Uh, which is why there's that. St- which reminds me of that story about Richard Pryor getting really upset uh, at a white guy heckling him or something. And he's like, "I just let me fucking talk. You get you get to talk all the time." You know? And it was sure, like sure. it was like sort of devastating and hilarious at the same time. The uh, the urban immigrant story, though, that 
that Lyman insists is mm. the the story of the stand-up comics being told in the 50s and mm. early 60s is actually of um, of Jewish comedians, mm -hmm. like uh, Mort Saul, for example, or um, Alan King, mm -hmm. right? People, even Woody Allen, doing uh, stories that are about uh, you know relatable human anxiety, and you know, I guess. Uh, commodifying something that is other, you know, ethnically other, culturally other, uh, so that it can be sold on record. Yeah, and the desire to be commodified, but also resisting it at the same time. It's like, uh, this, like the only way for your comedy to be circulated and for you to be famous is for it to become commodified. But then when you can become commodified, then you lose a part of your uh, agency. So, no. Uh, Del Close and the I.O. people, they insist that the thing is funny because it's true, right? That it, mm. it hits a note because uh, we see in it a reflection of the world as we understand it. What do you think about that? I don't know. Do you think that's true? Are you a fan of, are you of the school, Del Close school of thought? I, I, I'm, I think there is a truth to that. I don't live by uh, truth in comedy and there, uh, that I don't seek out trying to find something true necessarily but it has to be based in something you have to be uh pulling from something true and then kind of bending it in a way that is surprising mm -hmm. but i think if you just show truth i think i think that's when somebody like lenny bruce starts to fall off yeah i think that uh, right before that when he's He's speaking very truthfully about uh, these things that nobody else is talking about. And he's talking about them and he's he's saying like really hard facts that people don't want to hear. But then he's also framing them in these funny ways and he's exaggerating just a little bit. But he but, you know, you can say to yourself, I know what truth he's exaggerating. I think it's the exaggeration that makes it funny. And I think it's the truth that really amps it up and adds it, it makes the stakes of the joke much higher because we know it's true so i think you can't uh pull them apart but i don't think that because something yeah. is true it's funny which i well it's like that kind of <clears throat> trend it seems like these comedians are getting these fucking comedians <laughs> um, <laughs> the like like the problem I've kind of had with Louie lately is like it's oh, getting yeah. like it's like getting too real and like I mean because to certain like I love comedy I love laughing because I'm like such a depressed cynical over analyzing person so I need that release it's like bordering on maudlin sometimes yeah bit, like and like be... it's just getting like super I disagree with you guys Brecht mm. or something like I think I'm he's, probably he's doing Bergman I think that's you know that's and Bergman thought he was making comedies <laughs> you know he when he makes well, I'm like, not laughing <laughs> um, I don't I don't think that Louis is very concerned with making each episode of Louis very funny yeah which is fine right. which but is it just fun. gets to a point where you're like I don't know it's just like what are you trying to do you do like, I think are you I trying to like get like too serious or I don't know I think I, I think what I had to do is I had to abandon my uh, assumptions that the show was necessarily always going to be a comedy, comedy and just be like take me on a journey Louis all right that's fine you know yeah but then that's when I'm like more well, I'll just more go, it, but I just went there to laugh so yeah he could do whatever he wants to do it's just I don't know he I'm sorry I saw, just cut this out I take <laughs> it back <laughs> no, I don't no, want yeah. no that's fine no these are all uh, I've had the same experience and then I was just like, like no I yeah I mean, I guess it's the same thing like musicians have where they're like worried about integrity versus like doing the same thing over and over. Like I think of like 
Jack White and the White Stripes. Like, everyone wants, like, another rocking one, two, one, two, like, smashing album. And he's like, well, we did, like, two or three of these. And then the later ones started getting more. You could tell this is what he's interested in exploring musically. And the audience is like, eh. He didn't like, want to keep doing an impersonation yeah. of himself. Yeah. And it's like, because you can still listen to those earlier albums, you know. Um, and so I guess that's a little bit the case with Louis. Like, you don't want to just keep making funny stuff. But me as an audience member, I'm like, and especially because I spend too much time thinking about art, I'm like, I have enough of these experiences that are about, like, trying to make you, like, not sure what you're experiencing. And sometimes Mm -hmm. I like to go, I like to laugh. And I mean, and I like unexpected things do make you laugh. Mm -hmm. But when it gets, like, really heavy-handed and really serious in this, like, I'm going to tell you the truth. Like, I guess that's why I brought it up, because... Some of the the ones this season that were just like really in your face and depressing and aggressively negative and where it's sort of like, like that sort of like bullshit rocker moment where they're like, let me tell you what the truth is. Or like this, you know, all this around us is bullshit. And like you, you came here, like you want me to make you laugh. I'm going to fucking, instead, I'm going to tell you the truth. And I, I, for me, I I don't don't think Louis has ever been a show about, just like when you sit down, uh, know you're going to laugh. You know, in the yeah. in the first season, he has the entire episode that's based around uh, the ju- the the justification, the crucifixion <laughs> of uh, of Jesus, wh- where he, as a little boy, um, has what the crucifixion was explained mm-hmm. in great detail. And I don't, I I mean, if there are laughs in that episode, they are few and far between, right. and I. But I mean, that's one of my favorite episodes, and it, yeah. it is. I uh, it's I think it's beautiful in in itself. It it's definitely it's a fair critique to say, you know, like I'm sitting down to to watch TV, and I like I don't yeah. like. Do I need to be challenged every week? No, like yeah. I, I. But yeah, I don't I don't think that's what he's interested in doing with. Lady. I think that this goes to the heart of what the question is about impersonation, because I think what we see is that the, there's like a. Uh, dialectic here that there's impersonation and there's experimentation right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like you can and you, wanna, you can do what somebody yeah. else did or you can try something no one's done mm-hmm. right and when you are uh doing comedy like the way like you know if there's a criticism of louis show for not being funny then it's because what the criticism is then is that it isn't a comedy show it isn't doing an impersonation of a comedy show mm-hmm. Right, it is which is copying. what we were led to believe. So in that sense, it's he's not being. Uh, he, I mean, but at the beginning of the show, though, were we supposed to believe it was a comedy? Because it was. So yeah. he just sort of switched gears. So I it's guess, not like he broke I any promises. I guess it's sort of like, just like when public figures decide to change, like they want to be more taken more seriously or whatever. So they're like, I'm going to come out with this like folk album or something. Yeah. Or, you but know it, what I mean? Like, but it's what the impersonation is. You were saying though. Andre, about like so, you think that Louis is trying to do well? If there's a if there is a split here, mm-hmm. and that on one side you have just doing something that has been done before, you know, recognizing what the elements are and repeating them, mm-hmm. and the other version is creating something new, then you know, when if his version of creating something new is to just do an impersonation of Bergman instead, mm-hmm. then then he's where we see a little bit of his ideology there. We see mm-hmm. some of his um, some of his thought process. We see that there is possibly the idea there that uh, you know there is a kind of art making that is legitimate, 
which is, you know, the thing that reflects life. Mm-hmm. And then there's a kind that is crass and commercial, which is giving people what they want. The thing is, is uh, I like this for the, the public consumption, Louis C.K.'s career has not included much of that. But mm-hmm. as far as Louis C.K.'s artistic career, there has always been... He's always been producing these short films. Right. Uh, they've gotten into Sundance. Like mm-hmm. he's he's been pushing himself as a filmmaker, which is why uh. when it was uh, time for him to do Louis, he was able to direct and edit it himself because he had that experience. Uh, when they were pitching shows to FX, he pitched them two shows. He pitched them a sitcom about his family, which he had already had two failed versions of, and uh, Lucky Louis and uh, another one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then he, the other show that he pitched them was just short films that he made with uh, nothing tying them in between. And FX went back to him and said, uh, "Why don't we combine these? <laughs> why, like, why, why, don't, why don't you just do short films through the lens of your family?" And that's what Louis is. You know, you'll mm-hmm. have a, a, a ten-minute story, and then you'll have a two-minute piece where he's standing in the subway. And a man's playing violin and then a homeless man comes down and gives himself a bath and then it's done and it's not it's not connected to the rest of the episode and that's it. That's all he wanted to do with it. Yeah, I mean, I guess I don't want it to come off that I'm like, oh, I don't like it anymore because he's not being funny. Sure. No, I mean, no, I mean, it's I think because it's not that simple. It's possible that he just switched the thing that he was doing and uh, that he was copying. Yeah. That it's that maybe he started out doing something closer to Seinfeld, and mm-hmm. now he's doing something closer to Woody Allen. Yeah, you know, and it's because this is something that he likes now. And what does it all he, have to be copying? Well, I mean, he doesn't appear to be doing anything that's actually new. I don't think that yeah. you see anything new on TV. Other than the fact that it's like a really like well, the stakes are too high to experiment really on television. It, it, it costs too much money. to me. For, te- for television, I think Louis. I thought it was pretty, pretty experimental, experimental. for, like for whole... TV. Sure, but we're talking about for TV. Like, <laughs> yeah, if but the, but where else are we experiment? I mean, that's like you got to start with the. Well, to even experiment a little bit in something that mainstream is pretty. It's not a bad thing that he's not doing anything like new, new. It's no, just, I'm not. Yeah, saying yeah, that's that, what I'm saying. Yeah, but if, you know, you if you talk about him as an experimental artist, as part of the avant-garde, then you know you oh. you put it in context, right? Yeah. I mean, he's not. He's not yeah, going up there it, and putting a yam in his vagina, right? Yeah, like but, Karen, well, Karen Finley did. Yeah, but she did she do that on Seinfeld or something? <laughs> that well, would be so good. Tim Miller was one of those, uh, you know, experimental performance art people, and he ended up on the Larry Sanders show. It's not crazy, but he was to go he was on being, there as part of the NEA, NEA four, though, right? Sure, but he was there. Yeah, and Karen Finley ended up on Politically Incorrect with Bill Maher. Uh, yeah. yeah, but that's all stupid. Um, no, <laughs> yeah, but I don't like it, so let's not talk about it's it. No, <laughs> but I'm saying it's more. I'm yeah. saying it is. Yeah, but yeah, I agree. And but there, but there, we, we shouldn't say then. Also, I want to make this clear that the point of the avant-garde is to eventually produce something you can sell. No, because that's that was a, one one of the things that was terrible about. Um, the relationship between video art and music videos in the 90s mm-hmm. yeah. was that these uh, directors were just going and watching art and then taking something that they thought was, um, you know, commodifiable and turning it into a way to sell people a, an offspring record. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and as a result, now you can't even watch video art without seeing all this stuff that, you know, you built this emotional connection to as being a, a way to, you know, sell records. What interests me about uh, where this conversation is kind of going is that 
uh, comedy as a genre can't really be separated from entertainment because right. when you, because comedy relies on trying to be funny so it it relies very it v- right. relies very specifically on uh i there is an so expected reaction to commercialism in that way too so yeah. whereas uh a lot of things that are avant-garde don't have to answer to that so then mm. avant-garde comedy uh still can be called effective or ineffective you know so like you you have uh you have it, it, comedy that's that is experimenting in that way and trying to push the medium forward for the sake of pushing that medium forward uh, still is expected to get laughs. It's still expected to. But to... we all admire Andy Kaufman, and he sure. he performed to rooms of dead silence for years. Yeah, and I mean, and that that was times when everybody leaving that room found it ineffective yeah that that doesn't mean it means it was great art it doesn't mean it was great comedy yeah i think it was great comedy and i think you see a lot of people copying it now yeah sure it's true but they're funny (laughs) i i like i i have a lot of respect for andy kaufman i i mean he was doing pure experimentation not all of those experiments worked i and then it took him uh, it, it was a process for him to find which ones worked, which ones worked consistently. And as soon as he did, as soon as people appreciated it, he was done with them. He was done doing Mighty Mouse. He was mm-hmm. he he was on to these other things, trying to find new ways to be experimental. So his entire career is people kind of being like, "I like this. I don't know if I like this." Oh, okay. Um. Mm. And so when you look at uh, the span of, so Andy- he was avant garde because he was he was okay with bombing, or in fact he was sought out bombing. Yeah, you yeah. see, fostered ambivalence because like he, 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 he relished in ambivalence. He sabotaged himself too. Like the minute you found accept, exception, acceptance, acceptance, that that's yeah. He was done with it. He wasn't yeah, interested. Like in... it, it became dead or something. Once once you could name it as comedy, once you could be entertained by it or something, he was like, oh no, it's time to. So then the experiment isn't to find what works; it's to find what doesn't work. Or to find what works for you and then see if you can get other people to agree with it. I think it's to find something new that works. And along the way, you're going to find an incredible amount that doesn't work. But I, I don't know. I feel I, I feel uneasy about this this model of the avant-garde that's just Thomas Edison in his <laughs> laboratory trying to find something he can sell to a bunch of rubes. But I mean, I don't think I don't think Andy. No, I think Andy, Andy Kaufman, Kaufman enjoyed it more when people walked out. I think that's when it was working for yeah, him. Yeah, that that was his process. It was it was he wanted to do that. He wanted to. Uh, he, I mean, he wanted to go into a bakery and get people uncomfortable, where it's only a performance for him. Yeah, and like he he yeah. enjoyed that. He he. It was a sort of a fantasy of a, per, a performance for one and of one. Like it was Ooh. he. I think everything he did was sort of utopian in that way, that it was just like, what what if it was possible to be a performer and the only audience you cared about was you? Like, what if that, and it turns out that... That's everybody all the time. Yeah. 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 But it's... Yeah. Uh... Well, in Breakfast with Blassie, <laughs> the, the short that he did with George Blassie, the wrestler. Yeah. And, I didn't see that. You know, it's clear that he is um, mimicking, he's doing an impersonation of... Uh, he did a lot of impersonations, but in this case, he's doing My Dinner with Andre, mm-hmm. the the play that was uh, uh, Wallace Shawn wrote with uh, Andre, Andre Gregory, right? And then it was turned into a movie with Louis Maul where they're just sitting there at a table and you're just sitting there actually having a meal with these people. And so he recreates it, you know, and but his version is so much more entertaining than My Dinner with Andre. You know, <laughs> he had the opportunity to like, here's a, a, a play and then later a movie. 
my dinner with Andre, that is notorious for not giving the audience anything. Yeah. Right? Like, this is just two people who are theater professionals talking about their experiences, and it is of no interest to people who aren't theater people. Yeah. Right? It's incredibly ungenerous. And then he goes, and he makes a version that's a bunch of weirdo goofballs in a diner, you know, doing crazy stuff, and he's interacting with people that are, you know, sitting behind him. You know, they're having a blast. This, that movie's hilarious. <laughs> so it, it wasn't simply that he was interested in denying the audience yeah, pleasure. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, a, a, something that he said over and over again is that he he wanted it all to just feel like a party. He wanted it all to just mm-hmm. feel like this experience. And uh, it, what part, part of who he was when he was performing uh, it was that he needed to only worry about what his response to it was. He needed to seek out, I'm not doing this on stage. I'm doing this in a bakery where no one knows that I'm not this foreign man character. Uh, they just like, they think at, at the best that I am uh, mentally unstable at like, like that might be, or, or I'm nothing, but either way he's interested and, sought that out and learned from that so that then he could go and use that elsewhere. He was, uh, that was an experiment just for him that then he could pull from and, and create, uh, just, just see what he could pull from. What can he pull from making people uncomfortable? How can you use that yeah. effectively? It's you know, very much of the time. Th- there's like this frustration I have. Cause I, I really like Andy Kaufman and I really like, even and I, this is a weird comparison, but I like I really like Billy Eichner, like Billy on the street, this sort of like making people uncomfortable and then like demanding something from them, not getting it. But at the same time, it is my fucking biggest nightmare in the world if sure. like someone were to come up to me on the street and like demand that I say things to them. And like I, I think there's a certain I think there's there's a reason that some of these like these avant garde comedians we've been talking about this whole time from the 50s and 60s and 70s and onward have like all been like white dudes except for Richard Pryor, obviously. <laughs> but like have all been like like Andy Kaufman was like well Richard Pryor also wasn't trying to make people uncomfortable. He was just trying to sure do an act. Whereas I feel like uh, to, the idea of like just going into a coffee shop and uh, just trying to make people uncomfortable in order to see what would happen seems like incredible to me it's like also rooted as you're saying sure. in, in incredible S- privilege super sure. like unless i cannot even imagine doing something like that yeah, if, if richard Pryor had done something like that oh my god you'd be in jail it would sure. be awful it would be so bad yeah but that's like such an art thing though now i know and it, it's like i don't know i don't want to say i don't like it because i like it if it's good but then how do you know if it's going to be good unless you do it you know if, you, if you're seeing it you go <laughs> this is good i don't know uh, it, when yeah. when uh Kaufman would then create a piece for the stage uh, after he would make some after he would make an audience uncomfortable he would always make it a point to then uh, flip it back and like he, he has a bit with drums where uh, he turns it as if like the audience doesn't like his jokes and he starts crying and all he wanted to do is this bongo and like he just kind of like drops his hand on the drum and like the way he's sobbing kind of starts to sound like a beat and then all of a sudden he's singing yeah and uh, and that was him trying to be like, okay, I've made you uncomfortable. Now I'm saying you don't know where the line is, so let's just enjoy this weird experience that we had. Yeah. I think Bridget, Bridget Everett does something like that too. See, no, this is, I think, closer to something that I, I would agree with in terms of what could possibly have been his project, which was that he wasn't doing like the Thomas Edison, you know, 
trying a thousand filaments until he finds one and then makes a fortune. No, what it's possible is that he was deliberately attempting to antagonize the audience because that antagonism was a worthwhile experience for everyone. Sure, and he was... So he, to get the laugh is too easy and it relieves the pressure that was productive. So when they laugh, that means it isn't working because they aren't getting anything out of it. Well, that's the that's Brecht. Then that go back that goes back to what you were saying mm-hmm. earlier, Eric. Yeah. About yeah, I don't know. By but, the time he's singing, though, there there are laughs, so he's bringing it down so that then he can bring it back up. Is like he he still felt that responsibility to like after yeah, making like somebody genuinely uncomfortable, pouring water on somebody's head that is a plant, but they don't know that. Sure. He he's making everybody like genuinely tense up and be like, why? Like, why is this man doing this? This is the worst thing I've ever seen. And then breaking down that barrier. So he's raised the stakes for himself. So as high as can be where he's he's tensed everybody up. And then they are very eager to suddenly relieve that tension and realize on some level, this is probably a joke. But so, you have to so, earn trust, though, from your audience in order for that to even have take place in the first, at but all. But sometimes he didn't um, use that uh, formula. Occasionally, like when he did, uh, when he read The Great Gatsby, yeah. you know, he just would read, and there was no that's relief. The wor- then he's just doing art, and that's the worst thing. But no, <laughs> when uh, Elevator Repair Service, the theater company, when they did... It was based on this, yeah. When they started uh, doing Gats, the show that they did here in Chicago, and then also in... In other places, uh, it's Scott Shepard walking out on stage, picking up a copy of The Great Gatsby, and then go, proceeding to read the entire book on stage over the course of seven hours. But people, I mean, there are, he'll, he plays, he's in the show, like there are actors, and I mean, they perform it, and he also reads it as right, a narrator so and a reader. There's a version of getting up on stage and reading The Great Gatsby that is commercial theater. Yeah, mm-hmm. extremely lucrative commercial theater. Right, yeah. but again, with that piece, what it turned into was he would he would read it, the crowd would literally start booing, and then he would say, "Okay, fine. Would you rather would you rather hear me read this book, or would you rather just listen to a record?" And then they the crowd would be like, "Yeah, we'd ra- we'd la- we would rather listen to a record." And then he would go out, bring out a record player, uh, start the record, and it was a recording of him reading Great Gatsby <laughs> from exactly the spot that he was at. You See know, those, so like, like tiny moments that are rewards. Yeah. You know, for this. Sort of. Now, this is something that's similar to uh, a gag that you did in. Uh, I don't. Sure. You know, with the the card trick. The card trick. What was this? At uh, the Ca- <laughs> at the not the Cape Berland show. The um uh, the, Bridget. the Bridget Everett show. What did I do with the card? Uh, oh, the the Haley's comment. Yes. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. The kind of. Uh, Can you explain to our listeners what this is? Sure. <laughs> no. Don't make him. Don't make okay, him explain. No. I won't his, make, okay. his bit. Sorry. Well, I, I don't do know what we're talking Sorry. about. <laughs> that's it's that's okay. the cruelest thing you can do. Sorry. A I'm a giant asshole. Come see me. My name is Ian Abramson. Yes. And I will please do. The do. Comet bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's it is but very it's, good. It's though. like a thing where the audience you expect the audience to have a certain, uh, you know understanding of the thing being spontaneous and dependent on people's uh, experiences in the moment, and then you reveal, in fact, no, the whole thing was planned from the beginning. Sure, right. Sure. The, the classic setup punchline of right. uh, you think it's this way, but really it's like this. Sure, yeah. I, I want us to wrap up, um, but I want everyone to say, uh, say something before we wrap up. Wrap up. <laughs> Anything at all? Oh, plugs. Yeah, plugs. Oh, God. Oh, plugs. I don't know. Uh, what's your okay. favorite impersonation lately? That anyone's done? That anyone's done ever. What's your favorite or one? Or one of your favorites? Uh, you can if you want. 
<laughs> if you want that to be your legacy in yeah. the world, you're free to. Okay. Well, should I plug my book or a dolphin? Tell it's people up to you. about your book. Go, Eric. Ah, this is serious, and I'll just be laughing the whole time. This is what I was saying. Well, I was thinking about with with the the Iggy Azalean stuff. Like, I don't like that music because they're always talking about how awesome they are, and I think that's awful. Mm. And then I'm like, because I'm all, you know, I'm like a loud talky person, but I'm also like kind of like weird about promoting myself and stuff and then when i hear a song like that i'm like oh that's just how you sound that's how you would sound if you were talking about how awesome you are uh Uh, so anyway i have i'm i (laughs) there's a book that's come out that has an excerpt of a thing i wrote in it cool (laughs) so it's not even do you want to give us the title of the book possibly the author the uh, so where they can find it um so there's a book called how to write about contemporary art and there's uh, an excerpt and a, an accompanying photograph of a thing I wrote that was deemed to be a good example of how one would write about contemporary art um, by uh, Dr. Gilda Williams of Goldsmiths in London. Mm-hmm. And it's out from Thames and Hudson. Very impressive. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, Andre. <laughs> Do you have anything? Um listen to my brother's podcast well he, he uh, records it uh it's uh, days of future cast it's uh comic books and stuff mm-hmm. and ian what about you uh is his plugs or my favorite impression Any, either of them okay favorite impression maria bamford uh she's describing a dream in which her pug was george bush and so it's kind of an impression of her pug kind of an impression of george bush and it's amazing Whoa. uh Check out 7 Minutes in Purgatory on YouTube. I do a show where comedians perform to a camera in one room and the audience watches in another room. So uh, if you want to see what happens when a comedian doesn't know how the audience is responding, you can look up those videos. Oh, nice. Excellent. Uh, I'm going to say my favorite impersonation is every pop singer lately just trying to do Rihanna. Just, nice. I thought about doing a whole podcast just about just like people trying to be Rihanna, but that ship has sailed. Anyway. I, c- I could end with an anecdote about impersonations. All right, end with an anecdote. Um, when I was a kid, do you remember? Uh, when I was a kid, you know, they used to have like TV events. Um, yes. And the only one left now is like the Oscars. It still has that kind of like old TV, like live thing. Mm-hmm. And I remember there was a kid. There's a. It was a, a Rich Little in a Night of Forty Two Stars, uh, mm-hmm. and he's a famous impersonator. Yeah, he yeah. came on and he said, "Well." Uh, I'm very sorry, but all the celebrities that were supposed to be here tonight couldn't make it. And then it's that was like his joke leading up to like all the impersonations he was going to do. And I just like as a kid, I was so confused that that could happen or like, (laughs) was he really like just trying to fill in and kill time? Because was he really stood up by 40? Yeah, was he really like, uh, did he really? I don't know. I guess it's not a good story. That was a good story. I liked it. Um, Richard Little was famous. People should listen to it. Yeah, it's really, I don't know. It was just really funny, like, to, you know, I just have that distinct memory of him coming out. I'm very sorry. It's just going to be me. I know you were here for whoever. And then he just proceeds to, like, do impersonations of every celebrity of that moment in the late 80s. And, um... It was, uh, I still remember it to this day. (laughs) Very good. This is Noisy Ghost. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.